0: Welcome to the Free To Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. What does it mean to be anti-racist? What kind of actions does that require? Those are just a few of the subjects rising literary star Kandwani Fidel is tackling in his new book, The Anti-Racist, How to Start the Conversation About Race and Take Action. It's a vulnerable and personal look at the impact racism has at the individual level and on the world as a whole. Kandwani Fidel, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you all for having me. I've been looking forward to this.
0: I know. We've had so many other people on that I know you're friends with. We've had Dee Watkins, we've had a lot of other people. So we're really excited that you're here with us today. Yeah. The one thing I wanted to talk to you about, first of all, for people that don't know you, don't know your background, I want to give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about yourself for maybe some of the people that aren't familiar with you and your work.
1: Um. So, you know, born and raised in, in East Baltimore, I grew up raised by my grandmother. You know, both of my parents, you know, had troubles with drug addiction and um, you know, many of the other symptoms of systemic oppression that people deal with growing up in the city, black people to be exact.
2: Mm-hmm. So,
1: you know, my grandmother took me under her wing because my parents weren't weren't really fit to, you know, take care of a child. My mother was uh twenty when I was born and my father was nineteen. So they, they were still babies, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, my grandmother At a young age, she was always on top of me. You know, she stayed on top of me about respect. She stayed on top of me about education. And the best way that she knew how to get me to understand the importance of education was putting me in quote unquote good schools. You Mm. know what I'm saying? Which ended up being private schools. And I got an aunt named Sadiq, who's my father's sister. Mm. And she used to give me $20 for every A plus that I got on my report card. So from like pre-K to fourth grade, I got straight A's, and um, you know, everybody in my family, from my grandmother to my aunt to my friends to the people who worked at the school, you know, they was under the impression that I was really in love with education, but that wasn't true. I was only getting the grades because my aunt was giving me money. So that's like, so you know, go back and track my grades after you know my aunt had the conversation with me, saying like, you know. I can't be giving you money your whole life. Like, is just something that you supposed to be doing? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my, my grades started slipping in Baltimore, you know, uh, gun violence is, a, is an issue here. You know what I'm saying? So ever since age 10, I've been losing friends and family to gun violence every year since then counting, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So I'm dealing with the, uh, you know, the trauma of just, just having parents in the streets and, me being in the streets and losing homeboys and homegirls to gun violence and the prison cells. And so it was kind of hard for me to really see a future for myself, not just a future like, you know, uh, well, it was kind of two ways, right? So it was one point where like I didn't see myself making it past 16. Then it's like, okay, you make it past 16. And then you're like, okay, well, am I going to make it to 18? Then you make it past 18. And then you're like, oh, you know, I made it past 18 or now I made it past 21. You know what I'm saying? But even still, you know, actually physically making it past these ages, I really didn't see a future for myself when it came to having a good job. You know, I really didn't have no plan Mm -hmm. because I was just always thinking that something, something bad was going to happen to me. You know what I'm saying? And it's hard to not think that way when it's always going on. So, Throughout this process and this this uncertainty, I just always went to school still. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I, I went to City for high school and I kind of played the game. I knew how to play the game. I knew how to, you know, finesse my teachers, you know, tell them that they dress, look nice and that they had are slick. And, you know, like class participation isn't isn't really common. So I was the only one really participating because I know it would get on their good side. That's what, like, afford me, you know, to turn and work late. It afford me, you know, to uh, not come to school, you know, certain days and, you know, I would just build relationships with them. And then long story short, you know, it came around that time when you had to apply for all these colleges and I applied to uh, several. I got accepted to, to Virginia State University and Virginia Union University. Mm-hmm. And um, Again, I really I really didn't have no future. I didn't, didn't really see no future and like what was right in front of me. And the only reason I applied to college was because everybody was putting a battery in my back telling me it's quote unquote, the next best thing to do with your life. And a lot of people didn't even explain what that meant, but I was like, you know, I want to get away from Baltimore, get a fresh start.
2: Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, just, just, just be in college. I went to Virginia State and uh, I had this English professor named Arnold Westbrook who channeled his lessons through African-American literature. And this is my first time falling in love with black artists and being introduced and engaged with black artists in this way, you know, and never been done before in my whole life. I thought that I hated reading. But when I started falling in love with reading in college, I realized that I never hated it. I just hated what my teachers in the past forcing me to read. Mm-hmm. So um, some of my classes, I would skip, you know, just to sit in my dorm room and read books and read the dictionary and watch film and study poetry and stuff like that. And um, And I was a sport management major when I first went to college. 'Cause you know, I was just like, what's the easiest thing that I can get my hands on? And I thought that it was becoming a sport agent because all of my friends were good at sports and I could yeah. be their that agent one day. You know what I'm saying? Just making making stuff up. <laughs> but um, you know, at falling in love with reading, February tenth, two thousand thirteen came around and um I performed my poetry for the first time in front of the student body at Virginia State in front of like two hundred people. And um at I got finished, like the applause, you know, shook the room. And I said to myself, you know, you can only get better at this if this is your first time and you got these strangers who are cheering you on. And um, the next day, I went to Gandhi Hall and changed my name from sport management to English. And um, i just just been doing my thing ever since. Graduated on time, 2015, came back on the bottom off. And I don't want to take up too much time on the subject, but I was just, I just hit the ground running. And I was performing on, in the streets. Yeah. I was performing at events. I was dropping videos on YouTube. I was sharing my work on the internet. I started substitute teaching at City where I graduated from. And, um, you know, I had this video that, that went viral of me performing a poem for the students. And that put me in a nice little spot from being uh, featured on CNN and Hopping Post and Business Insider and all these celebrities sharing my work. And even some people from the Ellen DeGeneres show had reached out to me. It ain't really going nowhere. But, um, you know, just a lot of good stuff was going on. and. Then I found people, I found professors and teachers hitting me up saying, you know, we want you to come down to schools and teach our kids. And, you know, I was saying to myself, I'm 21, 22. So I'm like, (laughs) you know, um, I don't really know how to teach kids. I just be writing poetry. You know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. um, at at a visiting these schools just jumping out the porch, just listening to what these people telling me to do, I started realizing how people and most importantly, uh, young black people was connecting with my work. So then it's like, then that became my moral obligation to focus on students and city schools and to get them to understand the importance of uh, literacy.
0: I know I want to backtrack a little bit where you talked about um, when you were in school as a younger kid, you talk about the books that they teach you, about the books that they have you read mm-hmm. when you're a kid in schools. And, and you use the term literary racism because mm-hmm. there isn't the amount of diverse books that are there for kids mm-hmm. that kids can relate to. Do you feel like now your books, that there are so many other books that are kind of coming onto the scene now that are being driven into schools, are you hoping that that makes some sort of difference in kids' lives?
1: I hope that it makes a difference, and I honestly believe that it will. But the thing about it is, is that one thing that we gotta, it's like we know it, but we don't really... And I'm saying we as as these systems, and even sometimes as people that's trying to do the right thing that are doing the right thing, being black in this country is a complex thing. It's so complex. So somebody will say, okay, these kids have black skin, so let's give them a Chino while things fall apart. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And it's like, okay, they're black, but they in, all the way in Africa. You know what I'm saying? Like, Al morals different. The way we talk different. The way we walk different. The way we vibe different. And I'm not saying we're supposed to pigeonhole kids to a certain type of literature. But what's around them, that should be the stepping stones. Like, mm-hmm. they should be the stepping stones to get students engaged in literature. Like, so, okay, you got a story about a young black dude in New York, right? Yeah. Why I give Baltimore kids a story about a, a young black dude from New York? We would give them a the story about a young black dude from Baltimore. Mm-hmm. and they can see, they can hear, they can smell the same things that they smell on the streets every day. You know what I'm saying? Like it hikes you up in a sense, like, okay, wow, I can exist beautifully inside a text when, you know, we have a long history of not having those experiences. You know, every teacher you come across, every professor you come across, always talking about the best films ever made, the best books ever written. And mm-hmm. all of those books You either non-existent or the experience is like, just like a speck. You know what I'm saying?
0: You did have a teacher and it was a professor later. You talked about a little who did change things for you. A lot of kids that are in school, maybe grade school right now that are like you, that were in grade school and didn't care necessarily or didn't love reading is it a hopeful experience to know that even like later in your education, you found someone, someone that turned things around that made you love this? And do you feel like that's yes. hopeful for kids?
1: I definitely feel like it's hopeful for kids. And that's why I go so hard. And that's why I'm frustrated when people don't listen to the kids. Like I'm literally telling you that kids, y'all are pushing kids away. Like if they are already saying that they don't like reading, you're like, all right, here go more Shakespeare. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And and it's it's nothing against Shakespeare, but it's like, yo, like you, how long does it take you for these teachers who work inside these city schools, right? With the majority black students, Mm -hmm. you know, majority of them don't come from the neighborhood. So how long does it take you? You know, you're with these students, probably more than their family members are with these students. So Mm -hmm. you come there every day. You hear their conversations every day. You read their essays every day. Mm -hmm. I know that their music be blasting through their headphones when they walk in the hallways. And you hear the music that they listen to every day. Mm -hmm. You know what engages them, and you know what doesn't. You see this every day. How long does it take you to realize that the things that they taught you, that they gave you, the material that they want you to teach these kids is not going to promote creativity. They're trying to promote conformity. Give them what they want. They basically be screaming. Some Mm -hmm. students even curse these out. We don't want this BS. You know what I'm saying? And you turn around and still keep trying to give it to them. Like it should, the, the student teacher relationship should be a, a back and forth thing. It shouldn't be like, oh, I'm dictator, you're a little country. You know what I'm saying? It should be, okay, this doesn't work. Now let me go back to the drawing board and see what does work. And, they are, and don't get me wrong, there are a lot of teachers in Baltimore city who do do that. You know what I'm saying? But it shouldn't be, teachers shouldn't be breaking the rules in order
3: to give their kids what they need to become self-sufficient.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
3: crazy. The Free To Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Go back to school at the Pratt. The library is here to help with virtual learning, from lending hotspots and tablets to live tutoring and more. Let us help you this school year. Details at prattlibrary.org.
0: I want to jump into the new book. It's really exciting. Um, I finished it yesterday. Uh, The Anti-Racist, How to Start a Conversation About Race and Take Action. This is a little different than it feels like the other books that you've written. So, what made you decide that this was the book you wanted to write?
1: So, what I wrote in this book, you know, th- these collection of essays, are uh, similar to things that I've written in the past. You know what I'm saying? I've like the title of my last few books is Aspers Artistry, um, Hummingbirds in the Trenches, Raw Wounds. And um, my home is a noiseless gun, which was my thesis project, right? Yeah. So all of that material, when it talks about injustices and racism and police brutality and drug abuse and uh the racism, you know when it, when it comes to housing in this city, and I already talk about these things, but when I was working on a deal with Skyhorse, they was basically saying like how you know they wanted a title that people could understand what the book was just by reading the title. Like mm-hmm. you don't know what Raw Wounds means by just looking at the title. You don't know what Hummingbirds in the Trenches mean by just looking at the title. So um, after that conversation, and you know, the way that they wanted me to approach the book, you know, it was basically what is a guide to get people to talk about racism and not only talk about it, but give them ways to combat it. And I'm like, okay, um, you know, the, the big term now is anti-racist, anti-racism, mm-hmm. you know, it's no such thing as not racist. You know, it's like, are you racist or are you anti-racist? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's something that I've been studying a lot and um, it's just been changing the way that I think, the way that I speak, the way that I consume information. So I was like, you know, I know that I have what, what people would call um, non-traditional readers. You know what I'm saying? So I know that the people who read my books, you know, some people, I'm the only author that they read. I'm the only poetry that they listen to. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, I take a lot of these big ideas that I learned from people like Dr. Eva Max Kendi, the author of Stamp from the Beginning, and Mm -hmm. I take big ideas from Toni Morrison, and I take big ideas from Asad Shakur, and I take big ideas that I learned from the people that I look up to in the literary world, and the artist world, and I condense them into Uh, storytelling, you know, about what's going on in Baltimore. You know what I'm saying? Through my lens. Like in my intro, I say I'm not here to try to get white people or elite black people or even poor black people to understand how we in in certain Baltimore communities live in different realities Mm -hmm. than people who are outside of our communities. And I approach it in a way where I want to show them that we are in this reality together, right? But it's like a coin with two different sides and Mm -hmm. it's like a pot of money, you know what I'm saying? And so the way that they fund the highways in these white suburbs instead of the jobs and education in the city for black students, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like Baltimore operates the way it does because conscious decisions were made to pay out millions of dollars in lawsuits Mm -hmm. because police can't stop terrorizing the people they're supposed to protect and serve. You know what I'm saying? Like I got, I got, I, I know some white people that said that they can count how many times they've seen the police in their neighborhood. Sure. That's a luxury.
2: Mm-hmm. You know what
1: I'm saying? That's a luxury. So basically what I was trying to do with this is use my personal storytelling to um speak about situations, how it was for me growing up in Baltimore, how it is for me living in Baltimore now, and showing people, you know, the anti racism, um, basically ways that we can combat, you know, racism by looking at a certain situation and say, hey, these black people aren't just idiots for eating unhealthy and, you know, for getting high blood pressure and diabetes. Like, that's what a racist would say. But an anti-racist would learn about food deserts and they would read books like Medical Apartheid to understand Mm -hmm. that we were, we didn't create this culture. We were born into it because we just, you know, used the, the cards that was dealt to us. You know what I'm saying? So...
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, We talked about it a little bit with violence, but this book is just so recent, and it even deals with COVID-19. That's how recent it is Mm -hmm. that you wrote it. And one of the things you really touch on is that there's two Baltimores, and you say your zip code determines whether you live or die. How has that played out for you, or how have you seen that specifically when it just relates to this pandemic? A lot of times people say stuff like that when it comes to violence, which is also true, but with the Mm -hmm. pandemic, it is most certainly true.
1: Yeah. I would just say that even when you look at the pandemic, right, like people who have pre existing conditions, it's like this world is really like every inequality in this country relates to another inequality in this country. You know what I'm saying? So it's like people got these pre existing conditions. So that's why, you know, COVID 19 will kill black people at a faster rate than it would white people who have access to better health care and treatment in this country than we do.
0: Even like you just mentioned, the food deserts. You know, if someone has diabetes, they may have gotten diabetes because they didn't have access to healthy foods, whereas in a white neighborhood, they may have access to four different grocery stores that are within a mile of them.
1: Right. And not only do you not have access to healthy foods. You get terrorized by the police, and as you know I talk about the police all throughout this book. So sure. you might have got you might have got robbed by the gun trace task force. So mm-hmm. now you poor. So now what you would normally eat, you know, you can't afford that. So mm-hmm. now you gotta eat snacks. You know what I'm saying? And, and then on top of that, you get sick. You go to the hospital. Now you're getting mistreated in the hospital because mm-hmm. a you probably got the cheapest insurance known to man, and then b mm-hmm. People just gonna treat you different because you know the complexion of your skin. So you got all of these factors that you know work hand in hand with one another. But you know, in my book, I got the essay called "Cool Tuesdays," and I, and I highlight my my friend Anthony Williams.
2: Mm-hmm. You know that
1: every everybody knows Cool Ants, eh? mm-hmm. and um, he saw that the fighting a virus for people in our communities mm-hmm. is gonna be a tougher battle than it is amongst you know the wealthy, because as we see, like, this virus, like, nobody is safe from it. Kids, mm-hmm. white, black, old, young, fat, skinny, it really don't matter. People who are healthy, people who are unhealthy, it don't matter. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he said that, you know, he found out that the life expectancy broken down by the zip code, you know what I'm saying, when it came to um, COVID-19 and people experiencing severe illness from the virus, you know, the majority of Black neighborhoods had it worse. So he formed the run club. Um, where he just invites anybody who wants to come every Tuesday at 6 p.m. And they run, you know, they provide healthy food. And even they do other things throughout the week where they like promoting healthy lifestyles. And they got personal trainers at hand where they doing all of these things for free that other people in this country will have to pay for, sure. that people do pay for. You know what I'm saying? So that's one way where I'm showing how racism has affected us but then I'm showing you a person who came up with quantifiable anti-racist goals to help change his community.
0: Mm-hmm. You touched on the police and that is a large part of your book so I want to jump into that. You talk about defunding the police and I mm-hmm. feel like that buzz phrase is so misunderstood by so many people. So what does mm-hmm. defund the police mean to you?
1: Okay, so when I first heard it, when I first heard no, first I heard um Everybody was saying, like, mass disarm the police or whatever. You know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. I I definitely agree that the police should be mass disarmed. But is it going to happen? Of course not. Like, America is a military. Like, come on. Like, that's, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we got to start small. And I'm not telling people, I'm not trying to police Black liberation. I'm not trying to tell people what they should and shouldn't fight for. That's, That's not why I'm here. But what I'm saying, in my eyes, it just seemed far fetched. But then I stumbled across, you know, defund the of police, and I'm like, okay, cool. This sounds quantifiable. You know what I'm saying? You take money out of the police department and you give it to the community. It's really that simple. Especially when you got Baltimore City Police who were stealing forty million dollars and overtime, year after year after year. But it was schools in the city that don't have heating and air, functional heating and air. And they writing on ancient chalkboards still. You know what I'm saying? And they sitting at the same desk and reading the same books that their grandparents sat at and read. You know what I'm saying? So if we defunded the police and take the money away from them and put it in these communities, then we'll be all right. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Anytime they can get $40 million in overtime a year, come on, that's outrageous.
0: Mm -hmm. And $40 million that you rent could go into schools, could go into healthcare, could go into a lot of different things that could help Entire city. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: You talk about, you know, these videos that continuously are coming out videos of black men being shot or killed at the hands of the police. You call them public executions, and you have an interesting take about these. I mean, it's a double edged sword because, in a lot of ways, these videos are showing what's happening, what's always been happening, Mm -hmm. but they're also shared, and it feels so desensitizing. Um, talk to me a little bit about these videos when you see the George Floyd video, the Jacob Blake video. I mean, it's, it's hard to continuously see these.
1: Yeah, it is hard. You know what I'm saying, And like in my book, you know, I, I say that the black male courts and you know, the death of the black male are always used to make statements and to show the world the injustice that's going on in America you know, images of dead Black people have been and still are one of America's methods of propaganda to promote racial conformity and it's harsh realities. It's like, we need to understand that public lynchings were public for a reason. Mm-hmm. They could have did that in a privacy amongst themselves or one people know they had hundreds of people that would come out. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? And they bought their kids, they bought their friends, and they smiled and they ate food and they laughed as they burned bodies.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: know what I'm saying? They dismembered bodies and sold their body parts as souvenirs. They took pictures with their kids in front of these burning bodies and mm-hmm. sold them as souvenirs. They only made those they only made those things public for propaganda to show this is what will happen to you if you threaten white supremacy and that can be anything as small as just existence. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So Us sharing these same videos, still a lot of people who love trauma porn. They love to see black people dead and dying. So now I'm looking at it like, okay, we're taking the videos. We're sharing the videos, getting them millions of retweets, millions of likes. So now the racists don't have to go outside anymore. They can just sit in a living room on a couch with their racist family and their racist friends, and they can watch black people die on Facebook. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? They can pull it up on a big screen in their house and just laugh at it. I don't need to see dead black bodies to know that people are dying in Baltimore. I don't. Mm-hmm. I really don't. And we got a long archive of enough dead black bodies to know that this is the issue. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So if you really want to go see something, go go look at the old stuff that's already out there. Like We don't have to see another person get killed by the police to know that it's something rotten in this country. Like We know it. We know it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of your book, you look back historically. So you talk about slavery versus today's mass incarceration and lynchings, public lynchings versus these videos and how it's change, but they're still the same, right?
3: Yeah. Get your high school diploma online on your own time. The Pratt Library is now accepting applications for career online high school scholarships will be awarded to students 19 and older to help them graduate online. No internet? No problem. The Pratt will loan you a tablet while you're a student. Apply today at prattlibrary.org.
0: You talk a lot about doing the anti-racist work, and we've talked a little bit about this, but what do you feel like? What are those first steps for people to do that work, both internally and then externally?
1: I feel like first is always understanding, like people have to understand what is a racist idea, what's an anti-racist idea, what's a racist policy, what's an anti-racist policy, because I know a lot of people don't even understand that, right, And, and I use the term in my book, you know, standing too close to an elephant, right, and I'm saying like how I know people who got beat by the police growing up for things that they didn't do, I got beat up by the police for things that I didn't do growing up. I mm-hmm. got arrested for things that I didn't do growing up, but it didn't take me till I was well into my twenties to understand what mass incarceration was. Mm-hmm. I didn't believe it. I didn't believe that the prison pipeline. I didn't believe that there was an agenda to lock up people. I always blame black people because that's what we are conditioned to do. Even in a heat of controversy, when we're the victims, which we which we always are, you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Somehow, some way, we still end up blaming the oppressed and not the oppressor. So I feel like. First, we need to understand what is the anti racist idea and what's a racist idea. You know what I'm saying? And um, one of the things that I say in this book throughout is that we have to be honest with ourselves and we have to help out the best way that we know is in our means.
2: Mm-hmm. You
1: understand what I'm saying? And the only people that can deal with that is the individual and in God. Because you can lie to me, you can lie to Everybody else, but you—you you can't lie to yourself. You know what I'm saying. So if you're in a position of power to get some laws pushed, you know what I'm saying, and 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 you increasing you 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 want to uh, campaign uh, for increasing the police in black neighborhoods. That's racist. You know what I'm saying. Like you see guys out here that are committing these robberies and that are committing these murders in the city. You know what I'm saying. Without any triple context as to why these realities exist. You know what I'm saying? That nourishes racist ideas to exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, if I see somebody get shot and I see somebody else get shot, I'm going to go get a gun, right? And I'm going to stay on alert.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: say I get arrested with that gun, then everybody from our side going to call me a thug and a no-good okay. knucklehead when in all actuality I'm just trying to protect myself and my grandmother because the dudes across the street got shot. I'm being an American, right? I'm just trying to protect my family like how everybody else want to protect their family.
2: Mm-hmm. You know what
1: I'm saying? But I just get called all of these names and I get I get treated as a as a stereotype, you know, from what I'm saying, without looking at my experiences and understanding how we even got here. And again, the best way that you can help. You know, I I highlight several individuals in this book who are doing great community work in Baltimore. And um, you know, some people that aren't from Baltimore that's doing this work. And it's about understanding what's the definition between a anti-racist idea, a racist idea. And then coming up with quantifiable goals to become stronger in your anti-racism work. Mm-hmm. Identifying an issue and then saying, okay, I got privilege. I got power when it comes to ABC. And how can I use my power to help people who are amongst ABC? You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. And you, in this book, really walk the walk too, because you make yourself really vulnerable. You talk about your poem and your video, uh, Baltimore Bullet Train. and yeah. You talk about how looking back on that, you think of it differently. Tell me a little bit more about that.
1: Most definitely. So, you know, again, like I said, I've been been dealing with violent murder since I was a kid, and it always has affected me. It's always going to affect me. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? As long as I'm alive.
0: Absolutely.
2: So,
1: you know, I'm a poet, and, you know, I go to school, I go to college, I learn all of these things, I become a reader, I become a writer. You know what I'm saying? People are calling me an advocate for certain things. And I'm understanding that, you know, like, gun violence is not the way. So I'm like, cool. Let me write about it. Let me share to the world about my feelings, how I feel. This is how I want to address gun violence. And in this poem, you know, it was coming from a passionate place, mm-hmm. you know, speaking about everything from grandparents having a bury their grandkids or seeing bodies laid out on the streets with blood leaking from them. You know what I'm saying? And speaking about this violence. And, and you know, I shot a video for it and released it on YouTube, and it got all this attention. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's one scene where I'm arguing with my grandmother because I go against her wishes and I want me to hang out on the street because it's, quote-unquote, dangerous,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: And um, I'm, I'm finding myself, you know, speaking, performing this poem, excuse me, I find myself performing this poem at different people's funerals and stuff like that. And in the poem, you know what I'm saying? Like, I was speaking about this idea of, like, black on black crime. And I was saying, like, congratulations. Y'all gotta love killing these people because why y'all, why y'all keep doing it? It must be for fun. You know what I'm saying? Like, black people don't really care about black people because why would y'all be killing? You know what I'm saying? And and saying that, like, these people are uh, receiving immense joy from these murderers, these murders that's going on. And, you know, like I said before, I saw firsthand how gun violence mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, financially ruined entire households. And still, my experiences alone cannot fully address the issues I was dealing with in a way that humanizes my people. You know what I'm saying? So, again, I I use that term standing too close to an elephant. You know, I couldn't see the entire elephant because of my proximity, you know, to what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, you know, once I backed up, then I had some realization. So me jumping out there, speaking passionately, but also ignorantly, I learned that speaking about violence going on in my community and others like it was dangerous because I was consuming racism and classes, ideas unknowingly and not addressing how violence is clearly a symptom of systemic oppression. Mm-hmm. I was speaking out of ignorance from not deeply analyzing all that was happening around me. You know what I'm saying? The Baltimore bullet train, it reflected my honest feelings at the time. However, I didn't address how the violence in my community is directly translated to inferior circumstances we were confined to. You know what I'm saying? I I insinuated that there are bad neighborhoods. You know what I'm saying? Bad neighborhoods don't really exist. There's neighborhoods that's underfunded, neighborhoods that's heavily policed, neighborhoods that have a long history of state-sponsored discrimination. And that's why I also in this book, I say that we need to create spaces for people to just speak passionately about how they feel. Because mm-hmm. when you allow people to speak passionately about how they feel, then you got people from other sides and say, hey, I understand what you was trying to say. And I'm not taking away from that. And I'm not taking away from your voice. But this is a way, this is what you should read. This is what you should study. This is what you should analyze because you care about these people, right? Right. So humanize these people and what you're saying and what you're doing. You know, because a lot of times we be on the right page, we just be on the wrong note, or we'd be in the right book, but just on the wrong page, Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? And that's cool, too. And another person that I speak about is, who I believe is the biggest metaphor, is uh, Malcolm X. You know, Mm -hmm. he went from being a pimp prostitute drug dealer to, you know, coming across the nation of Islam, and they nourished him and gave him literally everything that they had. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Malcolm X's early teachings were different than his teachings from, you know, closer to the time when he died. And that just, you know, shows that people need time to grow. Like, I'm not trying to just sit here and cancel any and everybody. I'm not trying to be the police of Black liberation. But come on, like, be real. Like, you know when somebody trying to help me when they not. I'm a 21, 22-year-old kid at the time speaking mm-hmm. about gun violence. Sure. You know what I'm saying? And then that, and that I'm upset at it. But I never had nobody come at me crazy or nothing like that. I learned it on my own. But imagine if if I woke up one morning and I had all of these elite Black folks telling me, you know, oh, you canceled because you don't really care about black people. You sitting here uh, dehumanizing the same people that you come from. You a monster. You a part of the problem, opposed mm-hmm. to them being like, yo, I, I see what you're doing, young. And I see that you're going to these schools. I see that you're talking to kids and you donating books and you, you know, you in a community like, come here, let me, let me help you. Let me put you on game. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's how we should talk to one another. You know what I'm saying? Because you can tell when somebody is speaking with malicious intent and mm-hmm. they got a mission. Or you could just tell when somebody just don't really understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, and, and another thing that I, you know, address in this book is like, you know, our experiences alone is not going to get us to encompass everything that we want to say. And that's why the research is important too.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Knowing the background is important. One passage that I think sort of culminates all of what you just said um, from your book is quote, once you realize that something's going on and it needs to be fixed, it's up to you to create spaces for people to be vulnerable, to be honest, and to even show ignorance. And from this space, realization and growth occur. Do you feel like that's really the first step for everyone is being able to admit your own ignorance?
1: I feel like it's not the first step for everyone because mm-hmm. you have these hoarders of racist ideas. Like they know mm-hmm. what's going on. Like those people that you're never going to change their mind. I'm not talking about them, but Mm -hmm. you have people who want to, like, I feel like we live in a a witch hunt type-ish society now. You know what I'm saying? Like people are like sniffing out the other, you know, like truffle pigs just so they can tear them apart. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, people see that that's going on and they like, wait, I'm not going to speak on that. I'm not going to speak about voting. I'm not going to speak on women's rights. I'm not going to speak on little black kids, you know, Mm -hmm. getting murdered in their communities by people that look just, I'm not going to speak on that because I don't want to sound dumb. I don't Mm want to get eaten up. I don't want to get tore apart. Mm -hmm. But Malcolm X didn't care. You know what I'm saying? And he learned from it. You know, I didn't care. I learned from it. So what if I would have never said anything? What if I would have just kept my mouth shut? Then -hmm. I would have never grew. I would have never learned. So it's like now that I understand this, right? How could I ever speak in an aggressive tone or a negative way to another young brother or another young sister that say things like black on black crime how could i ever cuss them out and get mad at them because i was the same person who was saying that mm-hmm. so a lot of people they won't say anything because they don't want to be wrong it's like a lot of places that i, that I be saying it's like it's really no room for nuanced conversation it's like you even an extremist or you anti Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So those people who really don't know, I feel like afraid to say anything. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if the, if, we, if we make people afraid to speak their mind, then we just going to keep living in like this pseudo fake racially <laughs> progressed world. Yep. And that's why I'd be saying like, yo, we needed a Trump. We needed somebody to slam dunk that racism in our face. We mm-hmm. needed somebody to be unapologetically racist. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? So we could be like, oh, that, that's what they on. Like, okay, all right. <laughs> so now you can know. Now you can know which side you want to be on. So I feel like mm-hmm. it's all about opening your mouth and just just speaking about, you know, how you feel about the world. You know what I'm saying? How you feel about what's going on? Like everybody got voice. Everybody got experience. Speak about your experience and then just go from there. But don't just let your experience alone craft the way that you view other people in this world. You know what I'm saying? hmm. So I hope that made, that makes sense.
0: It does. My last question for you is, with this book, what do you hope that, you know, maybe a teenager in Baltimore City who maybe hasn't connected to literature, uh, what do you hope that they get out of this book?
1: I honestly want them to know about the politics in their city mm-hmm. and how they are targeted and how all the negative things that are going on in their life is directly related to systemic oppression. I want them to realize that it's not their fault. I want them to realize that literacy is important. I want them to realize just the true history about our ancestors, the true history about many uh, white American ancestors and the violence and the oppression that comes from that. And hopefully that will help them better maneuver through this city and just show them how to deal with life, how they must face it outside of the city, outside of the classroom. You know what I'm saying? Like, basically what I learned at 22, 23, 24, what I'm learning at 27, I feel like I would be way more sharp when I have an even stronger movement if I would have learned these things in middle and high school.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know what I'm saying? So I just want them to be ahead of the curve when it comes to, you know, trying their best to take control of their life the best way that they can with what this world is giving them, you know what I'm saying. And I want them to realize that they getting pimped, like Tupac say. Everybody get pimped. Everybody in this world get pimped. But it's not about getting pimped. It's about how long you get pimped. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying. So I want them to understand that these educational systems wasn't built, you know, for their favor. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying. Like nothing in this country was built for your favor. And mm-hmm. I kind of want them to understand that at an early age and. Then, you know, hopefully they they fall in love with literacy and reading and history. And we can just keep transferring this knowledge and transferring not only the knowledge, but uh, physical ways that we can help, you know, uh, this world to move towards an anti racist world.
0: Kandwani Fidel, thank you so much for this great conversation.
1: Yeah, no problem. Thank y'all for having me.
3: Need a book, audiobook, hotspot, or more? Sidewalk service is now available at 14 Enoch Pratt Free Library locations. Pick up your materials contact-free. Remote printing is also available on-site. Make an appointment today at prattlibrary.org.
0: I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow The Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another free to be more conversation. Thanks for listening.